You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and today we will be talking all about sharks and their behavior and their conservation with my guest, Dr. Giannis Papastamatiu. Did I say that right? You did. You did. Okay, great. Giannis is a nationally acclaimed shark researcher and professor from Florida International University. And Dr. Papastamatiu is one of the world's leading shark behavioral ecologists. His work has been featured on National Geographic, BBC, and Discovery Channel. And on All Creatures Podcast, we always celebrate and support our ocean creatures during the month of July, which is also timed perfectly with National Geographic's Shark Fest, which features incredible shark-themed programming for the whole month of July, kicking off July 2nd. And we are so excited to be featuring Yanni here because he is featured on three programs, including When Sharks Attack 360, Sharkano, Hawaii, and Bull Shark versus Hammerhead. So as we celebrate our oceans, the people working to understand and conserve the species that inhabit the ocean, I'm just so very, very happy to have Dr. Papastamatiu, or Yanni, uh, as I'll call him from now, uh, on the podcast today, helping us navigate shark behavior, since sharks often can get a bad name in the oceans. So everyone, please, please, please welcome Yanni here to the podcast. It's so great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And as we get started, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what is your background and how did you become this nationally shark researcher? Well, so I'm um, actually born and raised in London. So I came from a you know, landlocked uh, city, grew up in London. Uh, I had, you know, half Greek, Greek father. Uh, and so I actually moved to Greece when I was 11 um, and spent you know, my teenage years living in Athens in Greece before then moving back to uh, the UK to go to university. Um, and I, I've always, I've always loved sharks and I've always had this sort of, had this goal of, you know, eventually being able to study sharks. And so I was, I was very driven by that. Uh, and I, I'd always kind of wanted to go to the U S because especially this was, you know, 25 years ago. Um, the U S was really one of the sort of epicenters for shark research at the time. Um, and so I, I mean, it still is, but now there's other, there's other countries that have a lot more shark research, but not so much back then. So I made my way over to the U.S. I went to graduate school, did my master's, my PhD in the States, um, and then, you know, took a variety of different postdoctoral positions, moved around to various universities uh, before uh, getting, uh, getting a faculty position at Florida International University. And now you mentioned that you always wanted to work with sharks. So you must have been born with that. Like I, I was born with always wanting to work with and ride horses, and my parents tried to have me not do it uh, because it was expensive and dangerous. Uh, but it was in me. And so did you have an aha moment in the ocean? Obviously, probably not in London, but maybe when you're in Greece or in the ocean that you fell in love with sharks or was it more from like TV or programming? I don't remember having an aha moment. I remember always being like, I absolutely love being in the water. So my, my mom took like, you know, basically taught me to swim when, you know, 
when I was still learning to walk almost. And so I've always loved being in the water. Um, I'd spend my summers in Greece, even when I was living in London, uh, and learn, you know, learn to snorkel in the waters of Greece, which are beautiful, clear waters, often not too many big fish, but you know, still very, very nice conditions to, to learn to snorkel in. And I think my, my kind of love for the ocean came from that. Uh, and I just remember being around about, I think, five when I started to get this fascination with sharks. Um, and it just, it just grew from there. So I just, I always wanted to learn to dive. That was like the really only thing I cared about was learning to dive and, and being able to uh, study sharks. But there were a couple of programs that also were, were pretty influential on me. One of them actually being Jaws. Like I, I know obviously Jaws scared a lot of people uh, and it was very effective as, as a horror film. But I actually was quite inspired by, by the character of Hooper, you know, played by Richard Dreyfuss, who was a marine biologist in, in, that, in that film. And that was actually quite inspirational to uh, me. And the other thing that was a really big inspiration was actually uh, National Geographic's documentary on sharks that came out. I don't remember the exact date. It was, it was early 80s. And keep in mind that back then, shark documentaries were very rare, right? Now everybody does it. Everybody's in the water diving with sharks. But, but in the 80s, that was it. It was a different story. So there was this one big documentary. had Valerie Taylor testing out her chainmail suit. Eugenie Clark was in it. And it just was an incredible documentary. I had the VHS. It was a video cassette. And I just used to watch that thing until I pretty much ruined it. And that was extremely important for me and um, pushing me and sort of guiding me into this sort of uh, job career that I've, I've managed to uh, make for myself. Well, and I definitely want to jump into your career and the programs that you're featured in National Geographic this month. But before we do, I know that you have swam and dove all over the world for your research. So I just I just have to pick your brain a little bit and ask if you have a favorite dive site or a shark interaction story for our listeners. Uh, I do. And again, I'd be very fortunate to dive all over the world and, and some incredible places. Um, I would say the two that stand out the most to me is one uh, is Fakarava Atoll, which is in French Polynesia. And we actually did a, it was a filming slash research expedition there over two years. Uh, and it led to a film called 700 Sharks, which was actually on National Geographic, um, which was an incredible piece of work. And there we were studying the, the hunting behavior of gray reef sharks. So we used to dive at night in this channel. Uh, we were diving with what are called closed circuit rebreathers, which are basically breathing apparatus with no bubbles. It recycles your gas. It's almost like the same thing a national would use. Uh, so there's no bubbles. So you can stand in water for a long period of time. And because there's no bubbles, you don't really uh, disturb the animals as much. But what was so incredible about this place was that at night you had 300, 400 uh, hunting gray reef sharks. Just, it was just kicking off. I mean, it was like nothing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they were just tearing the reef to pieces. I think up until then, I had maybe seen one or two natural predation events in the wild. where You actually see a shark hunting something. It's very rare to see. And in, in that, on that dive, you'd see 15, 20 predation events on one dive. I mean, it just was a, a, a tornado of volcanic eruption of sharks. Uh, and it really, to that day, I remember doing that dive for the first time and just coming out of the water and, and, and just being speechless. And keep in mind, this was after, you know, I had uh, over 20 years of diving uh, with sharks under my belt at that point. And another dive that really did stand out to me is also the Galapagos and Wolf Island, uh, which is, again, very remote location. Uh, you know, no one lives there. There's, you can't even get on land. So it's very remote and it's well known for the schooling uh, scalloped hammerhead sharks. And again, I was doing, it, was, it was a filming slash research trip. We were using rebreathers again and being on the reef and just having this continuous wall of sharks. I would say, I mean, between several hundred to have perhaps a thousand sharks were in that group. And it just was... Walls of hammerhead just going past, just left to right, continuously, continuously, continuously. You just, you just didn't know where to look next. Um, and so those two really stand out. But I've also been to many other spectacular places. Guadalupe Island with white sharks. I just got back from Fiji diving with bull sharks. Oceanic white tips in the Bahamas. Uh, and then those were all exceptional experiences. But if you were to ask me my top two, it'd probably be those two guys. Wow, Giannis, you paint such a visual picture. I almost feel like I was in the water with you seeing that, although not quite that cool, <laughs> but I, I, man, that sounds just like you said, just stunning. Like you don't even know where to look next and you're getting to see these predation events and just beautiful. I mean, wow. And it, 
in looking at your at your research, you do study several different species of fish as you uh, throughout your entire career. So I was wondering if you could highlight some of the shark species that you have studied and what your current research in uh, what your current research and interests are. Yeah, so I like to keep my research interests broad. And so although the majority of my work with shark is with sharks, I don't only work with sharks. I also work with other fish, do a lot of work with grouper, other uh, coral reef fish, pelagic fishes, and then even some big uh, reptile predators. I've worked with alligators, for example. So, so I try and keep it sort of... Uh, That's because you're in broad. Florida, right? Yeah. That, that is because I was in Florida, yeah. 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 I mean, it, there's, if you want to study predators, you've got to include some big reptiles if you live, if you live here. Um, but I've studied many different species. I've said I've worked with white sharks. Uh, I worked a lot with reef sharks, especially in the Pacific, gray reef shark, black tip reef sharks. Uh, those are actually species I did my PhD on. Uh, I've worked a lot with oceanic white tip sharks. Uh, I've worked with the small uh, cookie cutter sharks. I've worked with some of the deep sea sharks. Um, I really try to include a wide range uh, of different species. Um, at the moment, the two major species I have projects running with are with actually great hammerheads, uh, which cool. again are a species mm -hmm. we get ar around Florida. Uh, we see them quite, quite uh, often. Uh, and then bull sharks. So I've started a bull shark research project in Florida and also, you know, just getting involved with some bull shark work in, in Fiji. Uh, and then there's several other species I'm also working with, like scalloped hammerhead sharks, doing some work with silver tip sharks, silky sharks, uh, white tip reef sharks. But the two biggest projects I have will be with it, with this uh, sort of gray hammerheads and, and bull sharks. And now, Yanis, can you explain a couple shark behaviors since you've been studying them for so long? That people might not be familiar with like most people probably think sharks swim they hunt stuff and that's it so what are some things about sharks and their behavior that might surprise us yeah so you know we, we uh, i've learned a lot about sharks over the last uh few decades and we we've come to realize that this old you know this image of them being killing machines uh and you know with with, with humans on the menu is, is really not correct uh you know they really are like that. Um, very, very few species of sharks, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, a little bit, but very few species of sharks will actually include uh, humans, you know, in their diet. Very, very, very few. So it's very rare for that to happen. And I think you can, you can really see that by the fact that if you know, you can go in the water with these animals and for the most part, nothing would happen. Whereas you wouldn't really want to go and do the same with lions or grizzly bears. You wouldn't go and hang out with them in close proximity because the chance of something bad happening is probably pretty high. But with most sharks, um, you can do that and probably get away with it. I'm not saying you should, but just that, that, that you could. Um, but, you know, interesting thing is we found a lot about recently, for example, is we're learning a lot now about the social lives of sharks. You know, people might not think of sharks as being social animals. Social animals, I mean, the animals like to hang out with each other. So when I talk about social animals, you might think of like, a pack of wolves uh, or a pride of lions or a flock of birds uh, or a colony of ants. But you, you might not think of sharks as being social, but we have now started to find out over the last 10 years, especially that we have evidence that these are, are actually social animals. You may have sharks that like to hang out with other individuals and you may sometimes have the same individuals that hang out with each other for years. So um, surprising levels of, of sociality. We've also found things out, for example, that uh, there's some sharks which are kind of omnivorous. So, for example, the bonnethead shark, which is a type of hammerhead we get in, in uh, coastal waters around Florida. Um, and we're able to show that they were able to digest and assimilate seagrass. So we always knew that, yeah, we always yeah. knew they had seagrass in their stomachs. They like to eat crabs. Crabs are their favorite prey item. And so, you know, it was always assumed, it's probably correct, that the seagrass is incidental as they're scooping up a crab, they get seagrass in their diet. And we always thought, you know, they don't have the ability to digest seagrass, so it's just, it's just in the gut. But then we showed that they can. So I'm not saying that they're going out and grazing like cows, but they are able to actually acquire energy from seagrass, and therefore that is kind of, you know, even if it's incidental, kind of a component of, of, of their diet. Um, and we, we continue to find, you know, amazing new things. There was a study by some colleagues of mine very recently showing that uh, hammerhead sharks, scattered hammerheads that will dive to a 1,000 meters which we knew that for a while. We knew that they could do these really deep dives. It was very cold. Uh, and what they actually showed is they actually get to a certain depth and then they hold their breath. They close their gill slits. So there's no water flowing over the gills. 
And that's because if you allow water to flow over the gills, you also lose a lot of body heat. So those sharks would lose too much body heat if they went to that depth with the gills open. So even though they're in water, they're obviously an animal that you know doesn't need to breathe air. They still have to hold their breath to go and do these deep dives, presumably to hunt, uh, which, which will also limit how long they can spend down there because they're, they're essentially holding their breath. So incredible. I'm just a huge shark fan. I, I studied mammals, but the more I've been doing this podcast, the more I keep learning about the physiology and the behavior of fish and bird and reptiles and other creatures that just just keep blowing my mind to some of their physiological feats and also their behavior. And then and then the fact that there's so much that we don't know about them. Uh, I know like with great whites, we're just learning about where their breed or um, not breeding grounds, but their uh, their nurseries are right. Like we don't even necessarily know where some of their nurseries are. There's still so much to learn about these uh, species of sharks. And so we definitely appreciate all of your all of your work on them. And I know for a lot of people, when they see sharks or they go to the ocean or they think of sharks, a lot of us uh, think of Jaws or think of uh, a shark NATO or basically a bad connotation with sharks. They're often vilified in pop culture. So you as a shark expert that's had hundreds of thousands swimming around you uh, when you're diving, why should people care about sharks and why should we want to protect them? Yeah, so there is, you know, there is obviously this fear of sharks. And I mean, it's not surprising. I'm not a psychologist, but it's not surprising because, you know, these are animals that occasionally, very rarely act as predators. And again, that's very, very rare, but it does happen. Uh, and I think what makes it worse for people's sort of perceptions is that this takes place in a medium that we're not comfortable in, right? We're not, we have not evolved to be in war. So if you're in water, even the best human swimmer is not, relatively speaking, is still pretty poor, a poor swimmer compared to fish or marine mammal. Uh, we can't see under the water unless we have a mask. And so you're in this environment where it's, you know, there's this unknown. You can't see what's beneath you. You don't know what's beneath you. Uh, and it's easy for these to put those two together and have this sort of unusual fear for sharks more so than you would for, let's say, bears or tigers or, or, or terrestrial predators, which again is on an environment that we can understand. So again, I, I understand where, where that fear might come from. Um, but it is important to understand that you know, these animals probably have a really important role in the ecosystem. And, and to be clear, we don't fully know what that is. You, you spoke about how much there's still to figure out. And that's kind of an understatement. I mean, we still know very, very little about these animals. And I hate having to do interviews where I'm always like, well, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> right. But yes. I'm going to say the truth. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. And, and so there's a lot of things we don't know. And one thing we don't have a good idea on is, is exactly what is the ecological role of these animals. That's not going to be the same. So the ecological importance of a great white shark might be very different to a horn shark, for example. And I'm not even saying which one is going to be more important than the other. We don't know. Um, but that role is going to be different. What I will say is that... Uh, Shark environments or waters with healthy shark populations means you have healthy ecosystems. Pretty much one of the, the warning signs we have for a lot of ecosystems that they are no longer healthy is that um, there's, no, there's no sharks there. There should be sharks in the ecosystem, unless you're talking about the Antarctic, where, where they probably are. Probably are. Um, and so it is definitely an indicator of, of a healthy ecosystem. And although it may not... Um, alleviate your concerns about going in the water. If you are in an area where there's lots of sharks, at least you know that, that you have a, a, a reasonably healthy ecosystem uh, in, your, in your backyard. Yeah. And so what are the statistics and how, how often do sharks attack? How often are they fatal? I know it's really low. I feel like your chance is lower than getting struck with lightning or some, or being killed by a cow. But what are we looking at here for the numbers? So the I think the average numbers worldwide are 70 to 80 or so shark bites a year. And of those, you're probably looking at maybe five to 10 uh, are fatal. So the vast majority are not fatal. And again, keep in mind what these statistics mean, because 70 to 80 people worldwide, and think how many people are going into the water, and think how many sharks are in the water, and that's all you get. Right. That's a very, 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 very small number. 
So when you do look at it from a pure statistics standpoint, it, it is, again, much smaller than the chance of being, let's say, killed by a, a coconut falling from a tree. But saying that, we also have to recognize that that chance isn't equal, right? There's certain places where the chance is going to be higher. There's certain activities. Hello, Florida. Chance, well, Florida, so Florida has some of the most shark bites, but generally the vast majority of those shark bites are from very small pieces of shark. So sure. it still can be a nasty bite. You go to hospital, but very rarely do we have fatalities. Obviously, we do have some. We do have some more serious injuries from bigger sharks, but the majority of our bites are from smaller animals. You have other places like Reunion Island, for example, where they had uh, several years of a series of uh, fatal shark attacks. And so obviously, the probability of getting bit in a reunion was probably going to be significantly higher than some of these statistics we're giving. So you do have to take into that context that, yes, statistics at a broad scale are nice, um, but those aren't going to be the same. Some places are going to have higher, some places are going to have uh, lower uh, chances of getting bit. Um, but again, it is, it is very small, regardless of, of which way you look. Yeah, and I grew up on Lake Michigan, and so one of the T-shirts I wear says, Lake Michigan, no salt, no sharks. <laughs> and that's, that is ultimately, you know, I often get asked as advice as to how to avoid getting bitten by a shark. And there's, there is some advice we can give, but ultimately, the only way to guarantee you won't get bitten by a shark is to, to not go in the ocean. And that, that's really the only, only guarantee that can be given. Yes, but I grew up a Lake Michigan girl, but now living in Florida, I go in the ocean. I am fully comfortable. Uh, and honestly, I'm more worried about the seaweed or other creatures than I am sharks, to be honest. So. Uh, and, and I would be more worried about uh, physical processes in the ocean than I would the animals. I mean, much more of a for me when diving in Florida is getting lost because we sure. have some strong currents uh, and, you know, we have rip currents and things like that. So I always, to, to put it into perspective, you know, obviously the, the, the ocean isn't a swimming pool. And that's not just in regards to the animals and the absence of animals in swimming pools. I mean, you also have things like very strong currents. And yeah. We don't have the same approach. When somebody goes for a swim in the ocean and gets caught in a current and drowns, we don't blame the ocean for having these strong currents, but we do have this, this sort of response when a shark points somebody of wanting to blame the animal when obviously um, it doesn't do anything from malicious intent. Now, the reasons why it bit that person can be varied, and again, often we don't know. But one thing I can guarantee, it wasn't because it wanted to cause them harm for the sake of causing them harm. Yeah. And now switching gears a little bit, Giannis, you're a featured scientist on three of National Geographic's Shark Fest uh, this month of July. So you're featured on When Sharks Attack 360. So we already talked about that a little bit, but uh, you're also featured on Sharkano Hawaii and also Hammerheads versus Bull Sharks. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about National Geographic's Shark Fest programming and what it was like to be featured on these shows and how the, how the filming was. Yeah. So I've been, you know, I, I think I do a couple of shark fest shows each year. And again, it, it kind of comes full circle for me because part of the reason I got into this line of work was from a national geographic documentary. So, uh, it's, it's, you know, it kind of, a a, a life, uh, one of those funny things in life where you're now part of the, the story that kind of got you started. Uh, and so that's always been special to me. And then not just with the, uh, filming side of things. I mean, National Geographic, the research side of things has funded several of my projects as well. So I've got a three or four research projects funded by National Geographic. So I've had, I've had this quite close relationship with them for, um, a while. Uh, and you know, I think, um, filming is its own sort of unique, um, experience and it's a learning skill, you know. Being on camera, it's no longer just about doing science anymore. It, it's about doing science, but also being able to convey it. Uh, and whether I'm good or bad at it, I don't, I don't know, but it is a skill in itself. And, and science communication and knowing you know, how to speak to the camera uh, and how to phrase things in ways that, that people will understand, that is a skill that's, that's almost separate from the actual you know, ability to do science or good science. Um, they're not the same thing. Well, you must be doing a pretty good job of it, considering they keep having you back to discuss sharks in your research. So, hopefully, I think so. well, we'll we'll let we'll let, we'll yeah. let our listeners well, be the judge of that. Uh, would you mind giving us a, just a little brief synop uh, synopsis on 
uh, what when sharks attack 360 yeah, and Sharkano yeah. uh, uh, Hawaii. I'm really interested in that one. What, what are so, those about? And first, I'll just say for all these shows, I'm just one component of the show. And so there's uh, often multiple different components that will go into a show. There's obviously not, not just me. So um, when sharks attack, look at how we can use a scientific study of shark behavior mm-hmm. to inform uh, um, what kind of goes on during shark attacks on humans or when might be riskier time for humans to be in the water. So particularly looking at things like, is there a certain time of day when it's more dangerous to be in the water? Is there certain seasonal times when it's more dangerous to be in the water? So using our scientific study of the behavior of these animals to kind of help inform the public uh, to ways that perhaps even if it's just slightly reduced the risk uh, of getting bit. Sure. So that was the main focus of, of that story. Um, the shark, Kano one is looking at um, the sort of the behavior and ecology of sharks around Hawaii, which is obviously, you know, and especially the big island of Hawaii. Which That's is a, not a bad active, gig to hang out. Active. No, no. I, and so <laughs> I did my PhD in Hawaii. So I actually lived, I lived in Hawaii for seven years. So I spent a lot of time working ooh, Which there. island? I lived on Oahu. So cool. I did my I did my PhD there, but I worked a lot on the Big Island, and then I also did a lot of work in the Northwestern Wine Islands, which are uh, uninhabited atolls. I used to go up there uh, each year. So the shark uh, sharkino looks at the behavior of, of sharks around you know uh, the island of Hawaii, and my particular area was actually looking at some of the um, uh, schooling hammerhead sharks that actually form uh, off those islands. So I did some work uh, there. And then the bull shark versus hammerhead is, you know, off of Florida, we have the two pretty iconic species. We get bull sharks, we get great hammerheads in the same waters. Uh, and they're likely to be competing with each other because they're going to include the same sort of prey items. You're probably not going to get them preying on each other. Great hammerheads are, you know, well-known shark killers. They like to eat sharks, but they're not going to be going after adult bull sharks. They're eating smaller species like black tips. But nonetheless, you can have these areas with bulls and, and hammerheads together. And the question is, you know, what happens when you have these two sort of iconic predators come together? So for that, I was really focusing on the bull shark side of things, uh, looking at uh, some aspects of, of their behavior. Wow. I, I look forward to all the programming, of course. Uh, but I, I, if, I, if I was betting lady, I think I would put, place my bets on the great hammerhead. So I don't know. We'll we'll have to tune in to find out, right? I, I uh, yeah, I'll leave it to to you know. And uh, again, you know, not necessarily that these two go to war with each other because that's not really what no. what sharks do. Sure. And it, it's it's an instinct one of these because you know when we look at interactions between animals and we look at contests between animals, you can think of like males fighting over a female in 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 deer or. Um, uh, in snakes, where the males will, you know, go through an elaborate uh, dance to see who gets the female, and you see these contests, and you will often get animals don't necessarily want to actually get to the fighting stage. They'll get to the stage where they display, like they puff their chests up, where they avoid the actual conflict. Um, but occasionally they do end up having conflict, and sometimes you get individuals seriously injured or killed. But we very rarely see that with sharks. Even when we have competitive interactions, very, very rarely, you may see some agoni- you know, uh, uh, agonistic displays between them, but very rarely do you see actual physical uh, contact and one causing serious harm to the other. So um, they seem to get along better with each other than, than a lot of other animals. Yeah, they, they, they know to stay in their lane, which is they stay in their lane. Us uh, humans could part. learn. Yeah, <laughs> could learn a little bit to do. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, 
Get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats hard shoes on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. Uh, and Giannis, I want to talk a little bit about shark conservation since you're the expert. You're out there diving. You've been diving for years, uh, talking to world experts about sharks. We do know that millions of sharks are pulled out of the water each year. So I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview on shark conservation. Is the population declining as a whole, or are there certain species that are threatened and endangered that we should keep our eye on? Uh, I wonder if you could touch on that. Yeah, so on average, we estimate there's about 100 million sharks a year being killed. And obviously that's an average. Oh, wow, 100 million, could be a okay. Bit, yeah, it could be a bit less, could be a bit more. Wow. Um, but that's the average. Um, and we know the latest assessments say that, you know, perhaps up to a third of species uh, of sharks, you know, could be threatened with, you know, either are endangered or, or, or becoming endangered. And so that's that's very concerning. And the numbers are probably higher than that because for a lot of species, it's very difficult to assess if they are actually at the endangered or critically endangered level just because we have so little data on them that you can't really make an assessment. So more than likely that that number is high. So shark populations worldwide, there are shark populations worldwide that, that are threatened and we are seeing declines in their populations. And the reason sharks are quite susceptible is if we look at their life history, they grow slowly. They don't reproduce very often. Most of the females have actually you know, internal reproduction. So the, the baby shark develops inside, inside the mother. Um, and that also means they have very long gestation periods, sometimes comparable to humans. So if you compare that to other fish that will you know, reproduce very frequently, uh, have lots and lots of offspring, grow very rapidly. When you have a life strategy like that, you can deal more when you have increased mortality from fishing, right? You can, you can deal with uh, increased levels of, of fatalities from fishing. When you grow very slowly like the sharks do with that slow reproduction, they can't cope very well with that extra mortality we put on them through, through fishing activities where we remove them. And so that's why often you see the decline in, in population sizes. But also to be clear, it's not true to say all sharks are in danger. That's, that's not a true statement. There are certainly shark populations that are doing well. There are fisheries, especially in places like the US and Australia, where the shark fisheries are sustainable, meaning you can fish them and the population sizes are, are stable. And the reason is because they're, they're well-managed, they're well-regulated, and that means that uh, you, know, you, you do see these sustainable fisheries. And that's not true for all species. There are certain species that you just, they just could not take any fishing pressure at all. And, and we don't fish them. Great whites being an example, at least in, in US. But there are some populations that, that are doing much better. But it is true that overall, there are a lot of uh, shark populations that are of, of great concern. Well, the hammerhead sharks, for example, we're very concerned about. Uh, oceanic white tips is another species that we're getting pretty concerned about. Um, silky shark. But there's, there's, there's quite a few species that are certainly uh, of, of great concern from a conservation standpoint. And you mentioned uh, the U.S. doing some regulations on uh, shark fishing. Is there anything else that are any other types of regulations being put into place either nationally or internationally to help sharks or new technologies to help mm -hmm. study them. Uh, what, is, what, is, what does that look like? Yeah, there's quite a, a lot of things, actually. And, and again, I should say, I'm, I'm not a fishery scientist, so this sure. is not my active field of research. But um, so when regulations get put in place, they include things, for example, like what is the minimum size shark you can catch? And the reason mm -hmm. for that is you want to make sure if you're removing an animal that it's had chance to reproduce so that it can at the very least replace itself. So you would have a, you know, a size limit. You can't catch an animal unless it's above this size. You then also have quotas. Like, yes, you can catch this animal. We're allowed to catch this many number of individuals per boat. Uh, when we look at some commercial fisheries, you know, there's certain quotas. And if that has been rigged, then they, they will, they, you, know, you can't catch any more for that season. Uh, and those are some of the regulations. And it's important to also realize that there's really two ways that, you know, fishing can, can kill sharks. There's targeted fishery, which means that you actually want to catch shark. And then what's also a really big problem is what we call bycatch. And that is when you don't want to catch shark, but they take the bait. So when you set long lines to catch tuna or swordfish, 
obviously the sharks in the water they see a hook with bait on it they they can take it and um and die but then there's also things we're trying to do there so for example we're trying to find ways to prevent sharks taking the bait and using things that may not necessarily prevent the animals you want to catch like a tuna taking taking the bait but will prevent a, a shark so you can do you know they're testing things like putting a light stick for example or certain metals that you can put on there uh, and then there's other rules. So if a shark does take the bait and become hooked, that's okay if it's released and survives. And so then there's regulations on, for example, well, how much line do you want to increase the chance that if a shark does take the bait, it can survive. And then when the fishermen bring it off the surface, they can release it and, and it will live. So those are some of the ways we can try to regulate fisheries. We also have uh, international rules on trade. You know, so there's what are known as societies regulations, which... Um, don't have any impact on what a country does in terms of, of fishing, but it has an impact on what you can trade. So if you want to trade internationally and you have a species that is listed on CITES, that can mean, no, you can't ship, for example, meat or fins from this, this animal anywhere else because that, that's, that's illegal. So that sort of helps, uh, tries to at least help the, the regulation of trade. And then there's, there's other methods as well. So for example, marine protected areas is, is a common tool in marine conservation. And those are areas you set off, you basically set aside and you're like, they can have varying degrees of regulations, but the, the, the most advanced ones are like, you're not allowed to fish at all in this area. And the hope is that it allows populations of fish to grow and to thrive within these regions and perhaps even supply individuals that can go outside the protected area. Those can be tricky when applied to sharks because a lot of sharks move over a large area. Yeah, they migrate. Uh, yeah, they move. So an MPA works well when you have animals that just stay in there. You know, so little sure. reef fish that stay in there, that that works well. So it doesn't mean that they're not useful. You just have to really uh, design them properly. So you want to put them in the right locations. You want to have MPAs in locations that are really important to those animals. So there could be areas that are really important to foraging. It could be areas where they like to mate. It could be areas where they give birth. Those are areas that you can set aside. So even though your animal may move over a much larger area, the really important part uh, are protected. And so those are just some of the tools that we, we can try to use to, um, to aid uh, conservation. Oh, I love that. And now, Yanni, I know one of your missions, especially with the Nat Geo Shark Fest programming that you're featured on, but also in your own research, is to help excite people about sharks, about their behavior, about their conservation. And so would you mind talking a little bit about citizen science and how that helps and, or, or impacts your shark research? Yeah. So, you know, citizen science you know, is the kind of the process where you can get non-scientists to essentially uh, collect data. Uh, and um, I've done a little bit. And, and so my, my, personal experience has been with working with some of the shark ecotourism operations and you know those are operators that take people diving you pay mm -hmm. to go diving in a cage or sometimes outside of a cage and you, and you see sharks and it's been uh, it's been a controversial topic because some of you have criticized that it conditions the sharks and makes the waters more dangerous and, and all these sorts of things and so some of the research i was actually actively involved with was trying to understand you know what impact this ecotourism operation had on the life the history and the ecology of sharks. But some of the things we would do, for example, is the operators would go out every day, they take people diving, and they would keep a record of, of what species of sharks they would see and how many. And they were doing this because they were out on the water every day, almost every day of the year, sometimes going back 10, 20 years. So you have this unprecedented data set. Even though it's collected by non-scientists, they know their sharks, they know what species they were, they could obviously count how many there were. And so you had this you know, very, very rich data set. And what's also important is obviously uh, most people probably think the majority of my job is diving with sharks. And that's not true. I, I mean, I spend 70% of my time probably behind a computer in the office. No, don't tell us that. That's, that's, that's the truth. And the higher up <laughs> you know. get, the smaller that percentage becomes because that's part of science. Mm -hmm. But it also means that I'm not on the water every day of the year. Right. So, uh, but, but these operators are. And so they have a sort of a, a, a data set that just we aren't going to collect ourselves. It's just not possible. And so there's other similar things. So for example, there's programs where, where again, uh, divers go out, recreational divers, and they count sharks. And I have colleagues who are basically collecting this sort of shark count data worldwide. And obviously, there's always issues when you have non-scientists collecting data. 
they're not going to have the same sort of quality control or the same rigorous standards of the scientists work. They're more likely to make mistakes, things like that. But because there's so much data, because there's so many people diving, you kind of, the general picture will be there in that data because the sample size is so large. So it can be really valuable. Now, that, you know, that is citizen science is one thing. What you're also talking about is public outreach. And I kind of changed my tune on that a bit because I used to be like, that's not my problem. You know, I, I do the research. I'll publish it in a, in a peer reviewed journal, um, which is how we, we published it. That's a scientific process. Uh, and that's my, my job. If you want to read what I've done, you go to the scientific journal and you read the paper. And I've changed my tune with that because I realized that that isn't good enough because, um, you know, part of observation biology or just, you know, uh, changing people's opinions of sharks is you have to be able to reach. And most people are not going to go to scientific journals, going to have a lot of jargon and statistics and stuff like that, uh, which is just not going to be that interesting. I think being able to reach the public with your, you know, to, to convey your work, uh, make it in a format that they can understand, but also what to hear is really, really important because I think, uh, you know, so much happens when, when public changes their opinion and, and we're seeing that, you know, again, I started grad school in 2000, um, and people's view of shark then was very different to what it is now. I mean, again, we had some shark documentaries then. I think, you know, uh, Shark Week and National Geographic were putting out stuff, but at a much, much smaller volume than what we're seeing now. Uh, and I think the reason we're seeing so much, you know, shark nature documentaries now is because the public wants to see that. Because, you know, I think more and more of the public are seeing sharks in a favorable light. Certainly not everybody, but, but I think the proportion is getting much, much uh, higher. And that, that aids conservation. It's, it's much easier to get, you know, regulations put in place when, when the public behind it versus if they don't care or if they're actively opposed to it. Yeah, well, and once again, that's why we love that you're featured on Net Geo's Shark Fest because it does. It gets people thinking about it, learning, excited, and you can't really be passionate about an animal unless you know something about it. And and also, if you're fearful of sharks, I know a lot of times friends that I've had have watched some of these programs and actually learned, oh, these sharks are creatures or not killing machines. Maybe my fear is not um, super validated by actual what's actually really going on in the ocean. So uh, and then not to mention, I have s several people that reach out to me each month, always asking about jobs that you have, for instance, uh, being a fish biologist or ecologist or marine biologist working in the ocean, helping protect these creatures. So I was wondering, because I have you here on the, um, on the podcast, if you could just talk a little bit about what advice you'd give someone watching, uh, watching you featured on that Geo Shark Fest or reading some of your work, what can they do if they want to become a marine scientist? Yeah. So, I mean, part of the reason I mentioned that the percentage of time I spend in the water is that I, it is important that people uh, realize the reality of what the job is. Right? I don't, it's, it's, uh, would be a misrepresentation to give this idea that we're just spend all day diving that, you know, you're uh, not, you're just, not just like, uh, um, like offshore from the big island of Hawaii I'm, by day and then, and then at night sitting out looking over the water. No, I don't, I'd have a hard time keeping my job because I don't think the university would value, <laughs> would find that particularly valuable contribution. So, so it's important to understand, you know, what the job entails, because there's a lot of different jobs you can do if you want to work with shark, you know, that can range from, you know, marine, marine science, you know, it's sort of similar to the job I, I have, or you can be involved with policy and regulations with, with fisheries. Or you can be involved with pure conservation work with NGOs, um, or you can work in ecotourism, which is you know not a scientific position, but you know, like a dive instructor or dive guide, and and you dive for shots every day. So there's a variety of different things. I'm really just going to talk about the marine science aspect of things, what I do, and there's a few you know I, also, I get obviously a lot of inquiries about you know students when they come to my lab. I, I was going to say you probably get more inquiries than I do. I, I, I do get a lot and, and I give sort of some similar advice. And, and yeah, the first thing I would say is if you're looking at a career in marine science, do not let it be driven by an obsession with one animal. 
right? Because that is, is from a career standpoint, is, is, is not good. As an example, at the faculty level, universities aren't putting out uh, job applications for a shark biologist. That's not, that's not what they're looking for. They were looking for an animal ecologist, an animal physiologist, something like that. And so that's why I said I like to look at things from a broad perspective. Uh, and even though sharks are my favorite animals and the ones I enjoy working with the most, I don't just work with sharks. Even when I work with sharks, I try to answer broader, more general questions because I want to convey that would my work be of interest to somebody or a scientist that doesn't care about sharks? Because, you know, not, not everyone does, and that's fine. But would the general sort of concepts I'm discussing be of interest to somebody who studies marine mammals or terrestrial mammals or reptiles? Or like ocean health or... Or, or something. Exactly. So try and keep it broad. And even if you are obsessed with sharks, don't try and let that drive your career goals. I, I really avoid using the term shark scientist personally, because again, it, it really kind of uh, pigeonholes you that you only work with one animal. Uh, and from a career standpoint, that's, that's not a great um, approach to take. The other thing is, obviously, there's a variety of skills you want to build up as you are you know, going through your you know, uh, education, high school, undergrad, graduate school. Uh, and obviously, field skills are an important one, you know, and, and I get this a lot. Um, actually, being able to drive boat is more important, I would say, overall than diving. Everyone thinks that, that diving is a really important part. A lot of my projects do include a lot of diving, but to be honest, it's because I like to dive and I, I develop projects that had diving in them. But the fact is that for a lot of the work, you don't have to dive to study sharks. A, a lot more involves being on boats, catching sharks, tagging sharks, putting out equipment, things like that. So boat handling skills are really, really important. But what people or students neglect even more than that is how important uh, quantitative skills are. By that, I mean things like your math, statistics, uh, coding. Those are the things, computer coding, those are the skills that are really, really important because, you know, getting the data is, is one thing and obviously it's tricky, but really a lot of the advancements we're seeing these days are from the analytical side of things. And there's been huge advancements in the statistical tools we use, the analytical tools we use over the last few decades. And that really has revealed a lot more from the data we collect. So I always tell students, you know, make sure you're good at math. Take, learn as much statistics as you can. Learn as much computer programming as you can. But those are, especially, you know, when I'm looking at applicants to my lab, those are skills that I really, really look because um, obviously you learn some of that as, as you go into graduate school, but the stronger your background, um, the, the easier it is for you. When I look at computer coding, I think of it like a language, right? It's basically a language. If you speak the language, you can, you can, you can do stuff, you know? You, you can you can do your statistical analysis as long as you speak the language. If you don't speak the language, it's, it's very difficult to do. So um, gain as much experience as you can. Volunteer for uh, research opportunities. Um, again, taking classes is great in terms of learning things, but there's a big difference between being able to go and take classes and being able to go and do research. Big, those are almost completely different things. So if you wanted to get into graduate school, uh, when you're doing your undergrad, volunteer at other labs to, to get research experience. It doesn't have to be with sharks. It could be anything. But as long as once you start to see a student has research experience, then you know that they have at least been exposed to what research actually is. It's not just this sort of um, Yeah, and they're, and they're willing to come back for more. <laughs> they're willing to come back for more. They <laughs> yeah. know it's not easy. They know it involves a lot of analysis and those are, it involves a lot of tedious stuff. Uh, and they're still there. And so I think that, that's why seeing that on the CV is, is, is really important. And Giannis, for people that love sharks, but don't necessarily want to get into marine biology, what's your advice for how they could passively help conserve sharks and or the ocean? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a good question. Again, um, you, you can, there's other ways to work with sharks. It doesn't involve uh, marine science. So that's not the only opportunity um, you have. But in general, you know, things I, I, I tell the public, first of all, you know, learn as much as you can about these animals. Um, and then there are, you know, learn, for example, and it's not just about sharks, but say marine conservation in general, learn what fisheries are sustainable, you know, because not, not all of them are. Are you, you know, and I eat, I eat fish. I'm not telling you not to eat fish. I think that's, you know, I, I would never say that because it's an important source of food for a lot of people. Uh, but just know that, find out if the fisheries 
you are getting your food from are, are sustainable ones. And there are groups that actually do that. They actually list, you know, what are some sustainable, um, sustainable fisheries. So kind of do your homework. There's also organizations you can get involved with. But again, kind of do your homework because just because an organization says we are experts in sharks and shark conservation doesn't mean that they are. So, uh, you know, what are the sort of credentials of, of that organization and, and are they valid? I know that's not necessarily easy to do, um, but just kind of search around and see what is, you know, the general figure that's being said about, about that, that NGO. There's lots of very, very good NGOs that, that people can donate. Absolutely. And I have to ask, um, for people that are interested in your research, your lab, uh, is there any social media sites that you have where people could follow your work that you'd like to promote here? Yeah. So um, the two things, so I have my own personal Twitter account, which is Dr. Underscore Yanis. And then my Instagram account is just Yanis Papastamatiu, uh, one name. So obviously I, I post, uh, you know, anything I publish and then also, you know, updates and field work, pictures, video from field work. I always put stuff up there. So people actually what I'm doing, uh, they can find it there. I also, my, my lab is the um, Predatory Ecology Conservation Lab uh, for International University. So we also have, you know, a, a separate Twitter and Instagram account for the, uh, for the PEC lab, as, as we call it, um, where, you know, you can uh, also get updates on, on what, not just what I'm doing, but also the other graduate students uh, and postdocs in my lab. Awesome. And of course, we have to give a big shout out to National Geographic Shark Fest which features shark-themed documentaries, shows the whole month of July. So definitely tune into the programming. And of course, you can see Giannis featured on When Sharks Attack 360, Sharkana Hawaii, and Bull Shark versus Hammerhead. So please check those out. Um, uh, give Dr. Giannis a follow on Instagram or other social media outlets. And we will be posting all this information on our show notes and our Instagram at allcreaturespodcast.com as well. So we're promoting oceans and sharks and National Geographic Shark Fest all, all month long. So Giannis, I really want to thank you for your time and your passion in just helping educate us and excite us all about sharks and their behavior. Uh, it was such a pleasure to meet you. And I have one more really important question. Am I going to be able to get on a boat with you sometime? I'm I'm sure we can uh, arrange that. I, I'm not sure where you're based in Florida, but um, we're a pretty big state, but not that big. So, I'm right in the center in Gainesville, so I'm just a few hours from pretty much anywhere, or I can be. So, so we'll have... I I lived in Gainesville for three and a half years. So I I was a postdoc at University of Florida. Um, so I've spent a lot of time in Gainesville. Um, I try to get up there once a year to go cave diving. Uh, I I actually miss Gainesville quite a bit. Okay, well, next time you're in town, let me know. And uh, and yeah, we'll schedule a, a boat ocean date maybe. And I would love to learn more and obviously keep this conversation going because sharks need researchers like yourself, educators like myself coming together to help conserve them. So thank you so, so much. Don't be a stranger. We'll be in touch. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you featured on a National Geographic Shark Fest. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having me and, and letting me come on here and uh, talk to you about definitely my favorite animal. Awesome. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.